quiz time! Which great operatic diva sang over 270 performances at the Met and considered herself the house's La Regina, its queen? Get the answer on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. The answer to our quiz is the Italian diva Renata Tabaldi. Worshipped, adored, and celebrated for their singing, operatic divas have been thrilling audiences since the beginning of opera as an art form. I'm your host, Dr. Naomi Baratera, and in today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we join lecturer Ira Siff as he tells of the great divas such as Dame Joan Sutherland, Renata Tibaldi, and Leonie Riesenick that he has had the pleasure and privilege of seeing live on the opera stage. Hello and welcome to part one of Great Divas I Have Seen. I'm Ira Siff, commentator of the Metropolitan Opera Broadcasts. 2021 marks the 60th anniversary of my opera-going life, and that milestone gave me pause, causing me to ponder the great opera divas I have seen and heard during that time. In the four short chapters that will comprise this reminiscence, I have time only to touch upon some of them, having to omit some who I was fortunate enough to experience during those six decades. In many cases, I'm going to play an excerpt from a memorable role I saw that diva perform, occasionally sampling an artist in a representative role I might have missed on stage that best demonstrates what was extraordinary about that particular singer. Everyone has his or her story about how they first came to opera, Mine began in the cafeteria of James Madison High School in Brooklyn, where I became friendly with another kid, someone who in more contemporary parlance might be referred to as a nerd. I found him very entertaining. His name was Robert Misbin, and Robert's family loved the opera. I'd never been to an opera, and it all seemed a bit exotic and scary. My family went to Broadway shows. I'd seen some of the great ones, Inherit the Wind with Paul Muni, the original My Fair Lady, The Miracle Worker, Gypsy, and many more, but never an opera. Robert and I decided we'd go to a performance of this sensational new star soprano, someone called Joan Sutherland, who just made her Met debut. So I went to Robert's house in Mill Basin, Brooklyn, and we sat in the finished basement listening to the brand new Sutherland Lucia de Lammermoor recording and following it with something called a libretto. And a couple of weeks later, we boarded the BMT subway and made the pilgrimage to the Old Met on Broadway and 40th Street and got on line for a standing room in the family circle. I can say with assurance that were it not for that Lucia, I would not be talking to you now. 
Joan Sutherland was still fairly fresh from the Lucia Zeffirelli had created with her for her Covent Garden Lucias that made her a star. She was a far more exciting theatrical persona than one might think uh, from her later work. And of course, the sounds she emitted were superhuman in their beauty and flexibility. There were 20-something curtain calls after the mad scene, and I was an instant opera addict. Let's listen to a bit of what I heard that evening in the Golden Horseshoe from Sutherland's debut Met Broadcast Lucia in 1961, an excerpt from The Mad Scene with her famous virtuosic version of the flute obbligato. Silvio Varviso, also a debutante at that time, conducted. Well, I left my friend Robert in the dust, becoming a regular on the standing room line, going two or three times a week. For $1.25, I could race up all those stairs and get a great standing room place 
beating all the old men who were certainly younger than I am now, and if there were ever an oxymoron, putting the word regular with standee would be it. There was nothing regular about us. We were perhaps the greatest assortment of weirdos on the planet, but we heard some fantastic performances. After Sutherland's great success in Lucia, Met General Manager Rudolf Bing presented a new production of Bellini's La Sonambula for the diva, and a tradition developed. I had splurged for a two-dollar orchestra standing room place, and after the final cabaletta Anonjunje, which always brought down the house, we standees would run down the center aisle to the railing of the orchestra pit and just scream for Joan. The chief standee then, and for over 40 years after that, was the wonderful Lois Kirschenbaum. Apparently, Lois came to opera one year when baseball was off-season. Lois's penchant for baseball always puzzled me, as she was legally blind, but never was there a more devoted opera fan. At the curtain calls, Lois would lean over and ask me who was bowing, and when I said it was Joan, she would pour forth her deafening brava stupenda as we all yelled our hearts out in response to this next excerpt we're about to hear from a 1963 Sonambula broadcast. Again, Silvio Varviso conducts Joan Sutherland. Thank <laughs> you. 
and who wouldn't levitate at the likes of that coloratura? While my introduction to opera was bel canto, and my first diva was Joan, I began to experience various forms of divadom that caught my fancy, and there were indeed riches to be had. Just about every major recording artist was under contract to the Met, and with no budget for records, I had to learn operas by actually seeing them and experience the divas live in the house. It was, after all, more economical to purchase a ticket in those days than to purchase a recording. Imagine that. One extraordinary soprano who opened my eyes to the world of vocal abandon and operatic acting of the kind the standees termed demented the highest praise was the great Leonie Riesenich. Before the comeback of Maria Callas and the debut of Renata Scotto, it was Riesenich who taught me what operatic acting could be. When she was paired with George London for The Flying Dutchman, she always met her match in terms of intensity, and the two had a very special stage relationship. Their devotion to one another as artists was attested to me years later by both their spouses in interviews I did for Opera News, but it was clear to a 17-year-old in the family circle decades before. Leone also had an upper voice unparalleled in my experience. The notes seemed to, at the same time, be rooted deep in the depths of her body and her soul, and yet suspended from the chandelier of the old Met. We're going to hear the finale of Flying Dutchman with Riesenich and London as the Dutchman thinking Zenta unfaithful, sails off, and Leone, after an astonishing high B, of course, leaps into the sea after him. Zum grässlichsten Erlose, 
Although she was a Wagnerian, Herzig, Linda, and Elsa unequaled in my experience, it was in Verdi that Riesenich first conquered my heart. Opposite James McCracken's fearless portrayal of Otello, Riesenich again found a match for intensity. Let's hear her in the Act Three duet when Otello keeps insisting to see that fatal fazzoletto, the handkerchief he'd given her, accusing Desdemona of being a vile harlot and bringing her to tears. The first time I saw her in this opera, there had been death threats to her from fans of rival divas. Discretion forbids saying which rival divas. After a heart-wrenching performance, Leone made a curtain speech imploring, If you don't like me, don't come to see me, but please don't threaten to kill me. Those were the days. Nello Santi conducts McCracken and Riesenich in the Act Three duet from Otello. Tremendo. Vive 
scritto me, che non sei forse un vil In those days, some singers seemed to own roles. They embodied them to a degree that when we thought of Mimi, we thought to Baldi. Lucia was Sutherland. Callas was Tosca, actually against her will, as she really didn't love that role the way she loved Traviata or Norma. Well, Callas was also Norma, but don't tell Milanov. Milanov was Gioconda, Schwarzkopf was the Marshallin, and so forth. When Mimi knocked on the garret door and it opened and Tobaldi appeared, you were seeing a real bohème. Well, that's how it seemed. Tobaldi's persona possessed a vulnerability and warmth that made you always root for her. What Bing called her dimples of iron, referring to Tobaldi's negotiating skills, were to the public just those dimples that came with a smile that could melt a stone and forgave any lapses in her vocalism, which began to creep in in the early 60s. We're going to hear Tobaldi's meltingly beautiful Mi Chiama no Mimi from a live Puccini concert in the 1950s when the voice supported all the lovely and endearing touches she lavished upon this gentle character. Tebaldi was never one to overplay the coquettishness of Mimi, a tendency in some sopranos that can create virtually two musettas. Hers was a Mimi whose reticence was always present, except 
in the center section of the aria when Mimi describes the melting of the snow on the rooftops of Paris she sees from her window heralding the arrival of spring but knowing that any spring could be her last. Renata Tobaldi
One thing you could count on on the standing room line at the Old Met was that the old-timers would tell you that what you were hearing from all these young upstarts like Price, Sutherland, Nilsson couldn't hold a candle to the singers they'd heard, Muzio, Galicurci, Ponzel. But, I was advised, I could hear the last vestiges of a previous golden age by catching the final years of beloved veterans like Lich Albanese and Zinka Milinov. In their final years on stage, these singers embodied a past era, an old-school approach that was fast fading in the mid-1960s. I first saw Zinka Milinov as Desdemona, and there were some unintentional comedic elements to her performance which stayed with me and inspired my own later career in opera spoof. As opposed to the Rizinik Desdemona, when Milanov was thrown to the ground by Otello in their Act Three confrontation, Zinka was helped up by a bevy of handmaidens who magically appeared from the wings and then vanished. But best of all was during the murder scene, when Milanov sat up in bed while being strangled, pulled her nightie back down over her ankles, and then reclined again to finish being murdered. But then there was that sound large, voluminous, the still lovely pianos, and the grand manner. Modesty was never one of Madame Milanov's attributes. Her voice was self-proclaimed as the most beautiful in the world, and I really did hear a fan backstage after a performance tell her that her voice was like silver, to which Zinka replied, No, gold! We're going to hear Zinka Milanov singing the signature aria from one of her signature roles, the suicidio from La Gioconda by Panchielli. The conductor is Emil Cooper.
I was fortunate enough to catch Albanese in three of her great Puccini roles, Butterfly, Mimi, and Liu. I found the butterfly something deeply moving and so authentic. The sound was entirely Italianate, the pathos genuine in the extreme. Albanese always believed every moment she sang. For her, it was a reality, and she always stressed the importance of text. Her death as Butterfly was shattering, as we'll hear now in this Met broadcast, Dmitri Mitropoulos conducts, as we conclude this segment of our look at these great divas, part one.
That was lecturer and audience favorite Ira Siff speaking about a few of his incredible experiences with some of the greatest singers ever to grace the stage. These and other amazing performers can be seen on Met Opera On Demand today. Just visit www.metopera.org to start your seven-day free trial. And make sure to keep up to date on all things opera by visiting the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platforms. I'm your host, Dr. Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.